periodically, Darren asks me if I would be willing to fill in. And uh, it, it's something about he looks back and says, well, you know, you, you preached for 18 years, so uh, you've got a pile of sermons to pull from. But uh, I tend to be one of those people that uh, I, I look at what I preached 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and went, well, that was garbage. Well, that wasn't any good. And uh, so I end up writing new garbage. So, um, and then uh, I, I was also informed this time around, uh, because it is compulsory, uh, that the pastor uh, point out uh, his smoking hot wife. And so uh, up here in the front row, we have my smoking hot wife. Life is fun, isn't it? <clears throat> a few years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was my first time there in our nation's capital, and although I was there for a work-related training event, our team had an afternoon and an evening where we could just simply be tourists. And uh, so we went around and viewed various memorials and, and historic sites, uh, the Vietnam War Memorial, the Korean War Memorial, uh, Jefferson uh, or the Washington Monument, but the of all the places there, uh, I was most profoundly moved by the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, if you've not been there, uh, you ascend the steps to enter uh, the memorial, memorial between these huge uh, marble columns. And as you walk in to the area where the image of Lincoln is seated, you can turn to the left, which looks to the south interior wall, and on that wall inscribed in the marble is the Gettysburg Address. If you turn to the right and look to the north wall inscribed in the marble on that wall is Lincoln's second inaugural address. It has been said that that address was the noblest political document known to history. In eight days, our nation will celebrate and highlight 240 years of freedom. And since most of us will be at the beach or in front of a barbecue grill next weekend, it seemed completely fitting to talk about freedom today. To begin, I want us to hear and consider the words of Abraham Lincoln, the words that he spoke in that inaugural address, words that were spoken on March 4th, 1865 in Washington, D.C., just 89 years into the history of our nation and just weeks before Lincoln would be assassinated. What I want you to grasp in his words is not only the profound truth, but the emphatic theology found in them as well. Reading from the address, we read on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to the impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city 
seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the union and to divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. The other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through this appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible, terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil should be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. When I first read those words on that memorial wall, I was moved. In the many, many times that I've read them since then, I am absolutely undone. Being 151 years now removed from the time, the place, the circumstance, the men and women that compelled Lincoln to so profoundly and candidly articulate the essence of a people's battle for freedom. Do we today even have the capability of fully understanding either the cost or the value of the freedom in which we now stand? How real, how authentic, how true can a freedom without cost really be? How many of us, when it comes to our own lives, have settled for an illusion of freedom? How many of us have settled for fake freedom? And for that matter, is there such a contrast? What does fake freedom look like? 
What does the real thing look like? How can I know if I'm holding on to a fake form of freedom or the real thing? Well, as you may well expect, God's not silent on the subject matter of freedom. There are stories and accounts of both individuals and entire people groups throughout the scriptures that inform us about not only our innate desire for freedom within each of us, but God's intimate pursuit of us to provide it. Let's just say it up front. God created you to be free. God calls you to be free. And God comes to free you. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that it was for freedom's sake that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In verse 13 of that same chapter, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And in 1 Peter 2, we are told to act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You can venture all the way back into the Old Testament and read the Exodus account of Israel and their journey to freedom from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Freedom is a theme that is prevalent throughout the Bible. But while the topic of freedom is prolific in Scripture, there is zero indication that freedom is free. The people of Israel were miraculously led to freedom. Their departure from Egypt was a miracle. Their journey and its path was a miracle. Their deliverance across the Red Sea was a miracle. The total slaughter of an entire army that pursued them was a miracle. And yet in the midst of all of that, they weren't even 30 days beyond the Red Sea and the murmurs and the complaining began to rise up among them. We're going to starve here. You've brought us out here to die Remember the leeks. Remember the fruit and the vegetables we had in Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. At least there we had three square meals a day. Life was safe. It was predictable. It was steadier. It was slavery. But of all the passages in Scripture that portray the power and the essence of freedom and the love and the grace necessary to obtain it, there's no story more compelling than the stories that we find in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. And while we're going to take a cursory look at the entire, entire chapter, we're not going to read verse by verse through all 32 verses. But we're going to grab the highlights along the way. You may recall that Jesus is talking to a gathering of people. He's talking to a a collection of tax gatherers and sinners. 
the two groups that we see throughout the New Testament that in that day and age, they were the quote-unquote bad people. You don't want to be around them. Why on earth would you hang out with them? And so Jesus is talking to them and Jesus is teaching them and in their midst, there is a collection of scribes and Pharisees, the religious influencers of the day. They're looking in and they're listening in to what Jesus has to say. In verses one through seven, Jesus proposes a question. He said, what man among you, if you have a hundred sheep, will not, if he finds that one of them is missing, leave the 99 behind and go and find the one that is lost. And upon finding it, you'll, you'll throw it up on your shoulders and you'll carry it back home. And when you get home, you'll call your friends and your fellow shepherds and you'll say, let's get together because one was lost and now it's found. And you'll throw a party. And then he turns to the ladies in the, gr- in the group And he says, ladies, what if you have 10 coins and you find that one of them is missing? Will you not turn the house upside down? Will you not sweep and clean every room and every corner in search of that one coin? And now that the house is completely clean, you may as well invite company over and have a party and rejoice because that coin was found. Then in verse 11, Jesus tells us the story of a man who has two sons. And he spends more time and he gives more detail and he, and he creates a more intricate picture and story for us in this story than either of the other two. And Jesus tells us the story. Now, we often hear it, and culturally we've referred to it as the prodigal son. But there's more than just the prodigal son to this story. There's so much that we can learn. So Jesus tells the story. A man has two sons, beginning in verse 11. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Stop right there. There are three conclusions that this younger son draws from life. Two of them in this story, two of them are erroneous conclusions. They're wrong. But one of them is accurate. One of them is truthful. This is the first of his erroneous conclusions. He concluded that freedom meant he was to be on his own. He concluded that freedom meant he needed to be away from the father's house. This son became convinced that in order to be free, he needed to be free from his father. Dad wasn't hip enough. Dad wasn't trendy enough. Dad doesn't get it. And who of us haven't had similar thoughts as we grew up and as we go through life? If I could just get out of this house, dot, 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 fill in the blank. 
If I could just get away from this town, dot, 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 fill in the blank. We've been there. We've lived that. When he left his father's house, his father's boundaries and his father's rules, he failed to realize that it meant he was leaving his father's provision, his father's protection, and his father's security. And isn't it the case today as well? Far too many Americans are convinced that freedom means being on your own, free from boundaries, free from rules. Culturally, we screw up the family, no biggie, we'll redefine it. We'll take another stab at it, another failed attempt at anything goes as a nation. We'll see what happens. Who knows? Human life? Conception would be a good place to start, right? Not when the objective is to steal, kill, and destroy life. Remember Abraham Lincoln's words, posing his belief that maybe, just maybe, the bloodshed of the Civil War was God's ordained woe upon a nation for devaluing human life to the point of buying and selling it. Well, we can't buy and sell humans anymore. Or wait, can we? What do you suppose the God-ordained woe and blood price will be for a nation and a generation that has allowed the murder of more than 50 million. The catastrophic reality today is somewhere between 1776 and 2016, America redefined freedom. We've redefined freedom under God to mean freedom from God. Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, I wonder if that's a prophetic word for our future. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry, verse 16, that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, stop. When he finally came to his senses, don't miss this. Don't miss it. He came to his senses. When you or I are prodigal, when we are outside the father's house, 
when we are outside the Father's protection, outside the Father's provision, we are not thinking clearly. The Greek text in this passage literally means he came to his right mind. When you separate yourself from the Father, you're not thinking clearly. The third conclusion that he reached is that he came to realize it was utter futility to be anywhere but home. Repentance, hear this, repentance is always a great first step to finding freedom. He said to himself, man, (laughs) at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He practiced that line. He rehearsed that sentence. He wanted to know and communicate to his father that he had been broken that he had been wrong and that he knew he did not merit the position he had. But then he heads home. And so he returned to the father and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion, he ran to the son, embraced the son, he kissed him His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't even get the rest of the sentence out. And the father says to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe from the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the fatted calf. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And the party began. But, like any good story, there's a plot twist. And the plot twist in this story is called the older brother. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you have never given me even one 
young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Listen, freedom's presence is a value statement. Every story Jesus tells us in Luke 15 is a story about value. There's rejoicing because a sheep has value. There's rejoicing because a coin has value. And there's rejoicing because a son has value. A human being has value. In 2005, I was a mess. And I know, you're sitting there right now going, really? It could be worse? But I was. I was in my 15th year of pastoral ministry, but I was in my fourth year aboard the cruise ship Depression. Roughly 1,200 days of navigating torrential emotional storms, occasional calm waters with no shoreline in sight, even less occasional sunshiny days that were only there to taunt me in preparation for the dull, gray dreariness that would be tomorrow. There were many ports of call on the Depression cruise ship. I spent a lot of, day, a lot of days at Melancholy Marina in the Liar Lounge at Indifference Island. That was always a good visit. But my favorite, I think, was Piracy Palace because there I could always be assured that my joy, my hope, my happiness, my love, my compassion, my empathy, my desire would be stolen from me and I would be left at best empty. So by the time 2005 rolled around, the elders at the church that I was serving at looked at me in an elders meeting and said, David, you're right. You're messed up. And we want to help. So you find the counsel and or the care that you need 
and we will make it happen. And so in March of that year, I went to a retreat and counseling center, specifically for pastors. I was there for a week, and there was a private lake with a private chalet on it that was mine for the week, just outside Fort Wayne, Indiana. No TV, no internet, and I was to turn my cell phone off while I was there. There was a small radio and a CD player in the chalet, and music played a very vital role in my week there. My counselor was a name, a man by the name of Denny Howard. He and I would meet for a few hours in his office each morning, and he'd give me homework to take to have ready for the next day, and I'd have much of the afternoons to myself. Somewhere about midweek during my time there, in one of my mornings with Denny, he looked at me in the eyes and he asked me this question. David, do you believe God loves you without condition? And I looked at him and I said, of course. And he said, no. No. I know that you know it. Do you believe it? Well, that question more than unsettled me more than unsettled my heart, more than unsettled my spirit. It just undid me. And for the next 24 hours, I would wrestle with that question. It was in that period that I realized in Luke 15, I... I was the older brother. I had spent 15 years in ministry doing all the right things. I was the one in the fields working. (laughs) I was the one saying, Father, I've slaved for you all these 15 years in the remotest parts of the world, the upper peninsula of Michigan. And you've never once given me a megachurch to pastor with my friends. (laughs) I so love second service. You guys get my jokes. (laughs) It was on that day that I stopped. I just stopped. I stopped pursuing. I stopped posturing. I stopped 
performing. I stopped. And I simply waited. In silence, in darkness, in stillness, I waited. And you know what? He found me. I had this discussion with the first service as well because same thing happens. I'm not one to wear my emotions on my sleeve, but I have no problem <laughs> letting them be expressed. And I know the discomfort that creates. So my apologies for the discomfort. Beyond the discomfort, hear this. He found me. He left the 99 and found me. He cleaned every nook, every cranny, every corner of every room. And he found me. He looked down the lane and he saw me standing there with my face turned to him and he found me. He left the, he left the party to come and to implore that I enter in. He found me. We are each born to be free. We are called to freedom. Our freedom and our value are inextricably connected because both are granted by the same God and Father of us all. He valued both sons. Neither the father's love for his sons nor their value in his eyes was diminished or elevated by what they did or did not do. What they did didn't change their value to the father. What they didn't do did not change their value. Are you getting this? We cannot and do not ever grasp the freedom Christ died to deliver apart from believing the tremendous, immeasurable, impossible to diminish value that you have in the Father's heart, in the Father's home, and in the Father's arms. You and I find real freedom when we realize and believe our real value and our true value 
is only ever found in the Father's house, in the Father's family, in the Father's love. In Luke 15, of all three stories, the son's story is the only one in the entire chapter where the main character can come to realize his value. We can look at our nation's history. We can look at our nation's story today. We can look at God's story in his word. And we can look at our own lives. Our freedom hinges on this truth. Satan would rather... Satan would rather make war than let you survive. And Jesus would rather... Jesus would rather accept war then let you die. And war came. And freedom. Freedom was purchased. Heavenly Father, <laughs> Father, I know you, I know you hear not only my heart, because there are no words. But you paid the price for our freedom. And you look in all the universe that you have created and there is nothing more valuable than the human lives you've created. And you've created us to be free. So God, I pray that we don't, that we be a people who don't settle for the fake stuff. And Father, I pray that if anybody here needs to just stop and be still, and let themselves be found that they would do that. Father, help us to turn and to face you, to run toward home knowing that we won't even get there. And you will run to meet us.
and you will embrace us and lavish us with your love. Because you are love. God, thank you for a nation that more than any other place on the planet strives to depict and portray the freedom we have in Christ. May we here today be shining lights set in place to declare when the sun has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen. Have a powerful week, everyone.